Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Legendarium Podcast. Uh, this is, I, I don't know what episode it is, so I'm going to skip over that. But today, we've got a very interesting topic for you. I, I hope you enjoy it. I know I will. Um, before we get to the topic at hand, I'll just remind everybody, go to thelegendarium.com. That's where you can find the link to our Patreon if you want to support what we do. And I would greatly appreciate it if you did. You can also find the link to our Discord server, where there are well over a thousand nerds just like you talking very kindly with each other about fantasy and sci-fi literature. It's the it's the most fun and the kindest corner of the internet. Those two things are not unrelated. Um, so yeah, please join us there. You can find all those links at thelegendarium.com. I'm your host, Craig Hanks. And over there, he keeps trying to show me his E11 blaster rifle, which I assume is some kind of disgusting code. It's Todd Wenty. E11 blaster rifles rule, except when they don't. And he's got more swords than Breath of the Wild, but he's not half as much fun to play. It's author Ed McDonald. Hi, how you doing? <laughs> good, how you doing, Ed? <laughs> I'm good. Glad to have you. Yeah, uh, I, I haven't brought any swords with me. Because I, I, that's that's I, they're hard they're hard to get through the airwaves. <laughs> well, uh, I was you know today's topic is going to be you know weapons, fighting, combat, whatever battle in fantasy and sci-fi literature, and so I just you know I kind of assumed with your background, with your expertise and whatnot, I just I took a stab, so a to speak. stab. Well done. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> All right, guys. So today's topic, like I said, yes, weapons, fighting, whatnot. Um, and we are we're going to be talking about that with Ed. Ed is the author of Daughter of Red Winter, which just came out as we're recording it. It just came out a couple of days ago. Uh, this you know might be a week or two later. And so you can go check that out. It came out on June 28th. Daughter of Red Winter. Uh, this, uh, uh, Ed, this is a new trilogy that uh, you're putting out there is that right a trilogy or a series well i think we're saying series at the moment um mm. i suspect it will be a trilogy but uh that depends that depends on uh, everyone out there um you know there's always a bit of hope that <laughs> if somehow some crazy person single-handedly buys a hundred thousand copies on in the first week maybe they'll give me more books i don't know but pro- probably I, i'll I'll do that. I will absolutely do that as soon as uh, every single person listening goes and contributes $5 per episode on Patreon. I will do that. Uh, Well, you know, The Wheel of Time was going to be a trilogy. You never know. Things happen, right? Uh, All right. So I'm going to tell you guys a story. And that's going to kind of lead us into our discussion. Well, I should, before I get into this story, say, Ed, you the the reason you're talking to us about weapons, martial arts, whatnot in these books uh, is that you have not only a bachelor's but a master's degree in history, mm-hmm. um, and you participate in lots of very very fun sounding things. We're gonna get to that in a moment, but I'm gonna pitch my first question to you in uh, the form of a story. I was at a an unnamed friend's house. This is not, not somebody who's ever been on the show. Don't worry. I was at a friend's house. We're watching the Lord of the Rings as we do when we're, you know, 18 or whatever we were at the time. We're watching the Lord of the Rings extended editions because we're not losers. Uh, And we get to the scene. There's a scene where I think it's in the two towers, Aragorn and Arwen are lovingly gazing into each other's eyes. Um, She's got her elf ears on. She's just gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. And, you know, everybody in the room is smitten. Friend's dad walks by. Friend's dad is a dentist. Friend's dad walks by the doorway, looks in, sees what we're what we're seeing, and he goes, "Huh, class two overbite." 
<laughs> That's all he could come up with for Liv Tyler. The other one was, uh, uh, you know, no, no, I'll, I'll leave it there. Maybe I'll come back to another story like that. But Ed, my question for you is for somebody with expertise uh, in this area, do you ever, are you ever reading through something and you just kind of like ugh, throw the book down in disgust and go, all right, that's it. I'm out. Or are you able to kind of come down to the level of us mere mortals who barely know anything about this stuff? How, how does that go for you? Okay. So I think when someone starts learning sort of like historical martial arts and, uh, you know, we, we read, we read the treaties that were written in the, all the way from the, the 12th century onwards, and we try and you know, learn how to do it and learn what would it really be like if we were, were going to fight with weapons. The initial reaction that everyone has is they look at all their favorite movies and starts going, that wouldn't work. Well, that wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. Why is he doing a cartwheel? That wouldn't work. <laughs> and and for, about, for a period of about a year, I'd say, every movie you've ever really loved is kind of ruined for you. Even the ones that you thought like, yeah, this is really historically accurate. It just destroys them all. And then you get to a point where you start thinking, I'm kind of sick of being such a dork. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I should just enjoy the films that I like. And, and it's, yeah, you know, like if you, if you remember in uh, Rocky, when um, if you, if you've seen Rocky recently and, and what the fights are like in Rocky, it's essentially just one, Two, three, repeated punching in the face. And one of them gets punched in the face for for 30 seconds, a minute. And then the other one takes his turn at punching in the face. And of course, whoever made Rocky, um, you know, they they really didn't care what boxing was like. And Mm. when we see like the Lord of the Rings, I don't think, uh, you know, Peter Jackson really cares what what sword fighting was like. However, does it ruin it for me? Absolutely. It ruins it all the time. <laughs> and I don't just mean when Legolas is skateboarding on a shield or running up an elephant. But even if you watch, so like Lord of the Rings being an example, if you watch the way that, say, Aragorn and Boromir are fighting the uruk at the end of the Fellowship of the Ring, every swing they make connects. And every time it hits them in the armour... And every time they go sprawling down, it's like Stormtrooper armor. Why are they wearing it? Yeah. What's the point of it? It's, it's just fancy clothes. So absolutely, yeah, it, it, pretty much constantly. You just have to... But do you, you feel like you're able to turn it off sometimes and enjoy it again? Or uh, or is it pretty constant? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I very much enjoy films for what they are. Um, mm. Which is uh, they are they are spectacle and they're designed to take us away somewhere cool and awesome and fantastic. And sometimes you do get a film which you know uh, Ridley Scott's The Duelist, uh, Duelists, for example, mm-hmm. um, tries really hard to represent uh, small sword fighting quite accurately. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't enjoy you know, the the craziness of something uh, like we'd see in Lord of the Rings or um, uh, let's say, you know, I really love the movie Troy, the 2000 mm, movie yeah. Troy with Brad Pitt. You know, bonkers. You, you, just, you just made two <laughs> friends uh, somewhere out there who agree with you. I actually don't mind it, but yeah. It's, it's bonkers. It's, uh, it's, it's got like um, 
all manner of leaping about and throwing themselves this way and that. But, you know, it's uh, I, d- I don't expect things to be realistic and I don't think they should be in order to enjoy them. Well, that's kind of the thing. It's it's not just about sword fighting an army. You can take anything, you know, if we want to stay with combat, the way that guns are used in movies and TV shows, or it's just, it's terrible if it was in real life, but it's about looking cool. It's about telling a story. It's about evoking some kind of feeling. Uh, and once you learn the slightest thing about, uh, you know, about uh firearms in combat you're like yeah he's not clearing that corner correctly i'm out of here but of course you turn that part of your brain off right for me um my specialty when i you know years ago when i was in college it was linguistics and so sometimes you know somebody will use a word or phrase or an idiom or you know a historical something or other incorrectly and i'm just like oh let it go let it go it's okay let it go todd what about you do you have anything like that uh that you have to turn your brain off for? all the time. Uh, most of it when we come into the, the podcast. Um, no, I, I, um, how dare you? For me, it's the, uh, so I'm a psychologist by training. Um, I, I did my undergrad in psychology and then I was in human resource and training. And so for me, it's, uh, a, a lot of times it's about the way that, uh, there's, there's some really good movies, analyze this and analyze that with Billy Crystal and Robert De Niro. And so, and what about Bob is the one that everybody likes to talk about. And so much of those films are uh, almost right, but not quite. <laughs> and mm. uh, I find my I find myself stopping. And in fact, part of the reason that I never pursued a clinical career was watching What About Bob and saying to myself, I I really can't deal with this level of of insanity with people thinking that this is really how it happens. And I said, I have to find a different way to live my life because I don't want people walking up to me talking about it that way all the time. Oh, no, absolutely. But don't, don't you find... Uh, though, sorry, it looks like, yeah, yeah go d- for it. Don't you find it's more frustrating when, um, when they're trying to get it right for some of the time and then abandon the, the <laughs> you know, to say, they go, yeah, never mind. Because if you take a, something like, uh, you know, the film A Knight's Tale, um, with oh Keith yeah, and, yeah. Um, all time one of my all time favorites. Amazing movie, it. right? There's no attempt to do anything historical. No, it's not meant. No. It's like that's why they're singing "We Will Rock You" in the opening scene. You know, it's like they put the song in as a statement that this is not a historical piece. Yeah. It's not trying to be historical. So you know, what? I'm fine with them making it as like as cinematic as they want. It's the ones where you feel like they've been trying to get some historical detail right. And then something just out of the blue comes in and you think, hang on, hang on, mate. Where did, where did that get in there? Yeah. That's, that's when yeah. it can be like slightly frustrating. Um, but I, I, I was going to say, can we talk about blaster rifles? Oh boy. All right. Todd, you, I, Todd, calm down. <laughs> This this goes back to I think was episode fifteen of the show when Todd went on a ten minute tirade about the E eleven blaster rifle. So yes, we can talk about blaster rifles. Todd, you rein yourself in. I'm All gonna right. give myself a what timer. about blaster rifles? <laughs> uh, the, what? Go ahead. No, no, no. I was gonna say Ed. Why do you bring it up? Why Why do you want to talk about blaster rifles? Because don't don't you feel like. The invention of of like laser rifles, laser guns, 
we just accept that that's what the future should be like, right? People should have laser rifles, but but what are they? What yeah. what do they even shoot? Yeah, like it, it can blow it's... up doors, but it just sort of burns people. But it also goes through armor. Like, what is it they're shooting? Yeah, <laughs> it's a bit like okay. The the problem with the lightsaber is not the plasma per se, because that's what it would have to be. It's plasma, but then how do you stop the plasma beam? And it's the same thing with blaster rifles. They shoot the blaster bolt and it has a, you know, a 12 inch, um, you know, beam and it, it starts and it stops and then it moves through the air. How did you do that? How is it not just a solid laser beam? You know, I don't know. It's, one of my, crazy. One of my uh, friends and I played uh, Battletech. Uh, which was a desktop. Uh, it, it was a, a desktop battle game, um, kind of like, kind of like Warhammer Four Thousand. Um, you know some of these others. And one of the things that, that we had that we identified was that if a laser was used, there would be no time delay in in earthly kinds of situations. There's no time delay from the time that it turns on until the time that you're dead. Um, so this opportunity to dodge, yet yeah, no. No, that does not happen. And blowing things up, well, uh, let's see if it's light that's been amplified to a certain level, it's going to melt things. So it either burns a hole right through you and everything behind you, or it slags everything. This this explosive release of energy as it hits it. There's moments that I go, no, this does not how it works. <laughs> um, in, in fact... At one point, I was looking at, I'm going to go back to the E-11 blaster rifle. Um, looking at the E-11 blaster rifle, it fires. Which, by the way, we should know. For those who don't know, that's what the stormtroopers use in Star Wars. That's where this comes from. Okay, Todd. That weapon fires almost indefinitely. It has an infinite supply of energy with which nobody ever talks about reloading the thing. So... How big a power pack oh, okay. does it take to make the Ta- work? Yeah, this is where I get to play. This is where I get to play Ryan on the show. Ryan is usually our Star Wars um, like scold. I think would be a good word for him on the show. And yeah, Todd, didn't you ever play all the video games? Every video game that ever came out, where you had to reload, you had to find the power packs, you had to. Play, you know, and I think uh, they did. On, I on, think Todd. they did that for all of us that were saying when we're playing a video game. Yeah, this should fire forever, right? No, we want to make it harder for you <laughs> to ban a gas cartridges or what they're supposed to be using in order to uh, in order to focus all of the light to make it into a bullet. But think about this. I think, okay. That every bullet that is shot is faster than every lightsaber or than every blaster bolt that comes out of the blaster. It's crazy. And I love it. I oh, absolutely love uh, it. This- Ed, I'll never forgive you for bringing up the blaster rifle. <laughs> okay, I mean, uh, this is only the beginnings of my issues with the blaster rifle. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you know what? I was gonna, I was about to say, all right, I'm all nerded out from Todd, but you know, with a tease like that, I gotta hear it. Okay, okay. so the rant, the the rant floor is open. So, um, if you've watched the the Kenobi series, uh, I won't give any spoilers. Other than to say, there is a part where somebody stealthily decides they're going to fire one blaster shot to try and make a difference. And of course, it's night time. And the the key disadvantage of the blaster is it gives away your exact location every time you fire it. It's fundamentally less useful than, than any normal kind of uh, you know powder-driven firearm. 
It, it literally lights up your exact position. like And gives a line going back to right yes. where you can be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this, this is my biggest issue with them. I mean, don't, don't get me started on they seem to have developed the one thing that you could actually block with a lightsaber. I mean, <laughs> like cross, even a normal crossbow bolt wouldn't bounce back if you hit it with a lightsaber, would it? It's a self-defeating weapon. I like you. I like the way you phrase it. <laughs> this is uh, this is, okay. It's going to be hard for me to get through an hour of this. Uh, if we keep going on these. This may be the one time that when I cry, I cry tears of joy. <laughs> oh my gosh! It, so I don't. On on that note, let's take the Kenobi thing. All right. So it. Uh, sorry, <laughs> literally wiping away tears right now. It lights up your location, right? That's the sort of thing, actually, now now we get into storytelling and, you know, how weapons and combat work in storytelling. And you, again, we could do any number of topics, right? But today we're talking about this, where um, my problem isn't that the blaster rifle makes no sense. Like, you know, according to our understanding of the laws of physics, it makes no sense. That's fine, honestly. What matters to me is the internal logic of how it fits into the story. And so what you're talking about, I know exactly what you're talking about. And yes, I had that moment where I went, what, what this, because according to the rules of star Wars, as established, this scene makes absolutely no sense. Right. So that's, that's my issue. I don't know. What, what do you guys think? Am I, am I not taking it seriously enough? You never take things seriously enough or you take them too yeah, seriously. Me. One of the two. Uh, I think I, I think from, guess which one you are. Todd. I know. I know. I'm always yeah. taking things too seriously. I think with especially when it comes to Star Wars, I think the 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 fundamental piece of of a willing suspension of disbelief and saying, OK, long time ago, galaxy far away, things evolve, their stuff evolved this way. We just accept it because it's a useful storytelling piece. I mean, I, I, I get that and I, and, I, and I can play with it. But when I, when I stop and think about how the characters then use them, that's where I get a little confused. If a person knows that he's going to be, if, 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 a, if a person knows that his position is going to be given away by shooting his blaster in that moment, wouldn't he find a different way to do it? Wouldn't he try and set or it up for remote run? firing kind of a situation? Wouldn't he try and wouldn't they invent some kind of a stealth? Wouldn't they go back to slug throwers because they would hide you better? I mean, I would think that they would have all these different options, but no, we stay with the blaster because it helps us remember we're in Star Wars. So I, I think um, it's an interesting point, but if we look at the way that um, war was waged historically, we would look at it now and think, you would have to be abjectly crazy to follow the orders you were given. So, so if, if we looked at, um, let's say, we were even looking at the First World War, the idea, like, to us today, that someone would say, right, we're going to blow a whistle, you're going to run at the machine guns, you're going to hope to get 300 feet across through quagmire mud, barbed wire, shelling, constant machine gun fire and if you make it if enough of you make it you might kill enough people that we advance 300 feet across no man's land now it's illogical you would be much better off just sitting where you were and making another trench 20 feet back so if you lost your trench 
you just moved back. You know, there were no gains. And if we then look further back to Napoleonic era, where, or, you know, sort of like uh, the way uh, wars before in American Civil War, like the ranking up all these guys and just firing at each other, nobody taking cover, nobody, you know, artillery coming down around you, but slowly advancing into enemy lines. That is the same lack of logic as using light up laser fire weapons. <laughs> it's what you've got. It's what you've been taught to use. It's what you've been trained in. That's a, and it's a different. So now, oh boy, now we're getting into Todd's territory. Except I, I suppose this is more sociological than psychological. But uh, now we, I, our Western brains, the the way that we've taught ourselves to think is in a hyper individualistic way. Why would I do this thing? This makes no sense for me. Where uh, at that time, you know, if we're talking historically, those battles where they line up in ranks. Um, and even today, plenty of cultures think more along these lines where you are part of something, you are part of a whole and your job is to, yeah, follow your orders, get in line, advance on the enemy, whatever, where they, like that, I guess that just, it just rings a little bit differently for me. And so, so does it make any sense for me sitting here in my very comfortable studio today? No, it doesn't. But if I'd been born in the 18th century and somebody said, line up, and load your musket and let's go. Yeah, well, all right, here we go, because that's all I know. That's all I've been taught, right? One of the yeah, inter- absolutely. One of the interesting things, too, about that, um, I, I read a, an article that was talking about uh, the accuracy uh, of weapons from different time periods. Um, we recognize that as, uh, as, as firearms were developed, they went from, from very, very inaccurate to... You know, today we've got hyper accurate weapons that can fire from, you know, uh, hundreds of yards away, sometimes even, you know, with with confirmed success, you know, ranging in in terms of near near miles or a couple of kilometers away. Um, the 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 um, article that I read said that in the 1800s, musket technology had developed to be fairly accurate to a point where you could uh, pretty reliably less than a hundred yards, uh, land a shot that would be considered a killing blow against, uh, against an enemy, against someone that was coming at you. And yet when they draped a, uh, when they draped a, 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 a piece of muslin cloth, uh, in front of an area and told everyone to fire, they could hit the middle round of that muslin cloth with almost perfect accuracy. But as soon as there were other people coming at them, the shots were all over the place, uh, and they and they articulated the fact that perhaps when people are at a distance and they're they're aware that they are engaged in deadly combat, they don't want to be responsible for death, and so they would unconsciously or subconsciously avoid actually hitting anyone with their musket fire, um, yeah. because they could hunt very very effectively. They could. They could shoot very effectively on their own, but as soon as another human being was in the midst, it had to be until they closed up face-to-face, near face-to-face, and that it got personal, that combat really became effective from those distances. All right. Well, we have gotten so into the weeds. I I actually love it. I really do. This is this is very fun. But I do want to pull back and, say, and kind of talk about how this relates to our um, either uh creation of in the case of ed or our consuming of in our case todd and me uh of 
our media and I want to get into books if we can and, and how this how this stuff relates in books because we've talked uh, a little bit about kind of the the stuff that almost has to work on screen you know the one-on-one it's a gunfight it's a sword fight whatever uh but in the on the page you can get into battle tactics and the you know the chaos uh, that that goes into into uh, combat um so here's the question i've got for you first of all we've had a lot of oh doesn't it suck when comments but are there any books uh, let's let's stick with books specifically any books that jump out to you where you go you know what that did it right. That got combat right. That got a battle right. That got war, you know, not not just tactics, but also strategies and, and whatnot. Uh, do we feel like there's anything out there that really got it right? With or without magic? Hey, take your pick. Hey, this is a fantasy podcast. So if we say without magic, I think we have to turn in our, uh, you know, our epaulettes. Well, I, I hate to fluff his ego um, at all, but... Um, uh, Joe Abercrombie, uh, in his, uh, I think it's his sixth book, uh, The Heroes. Um, it's if you haven't read it, it's uh, a uh, something like eight hundred pages, and I think if I remember right, but it's, it's, it felt like a long book, and the whole thing is a four-day battle, um, not like a single clash of armies, but. A sort of strategic deployments and you know taking this hill or that small village and um and what he gets across in it that feels very honest and very realistic is just how absolutely random and chaotic and confusing everything about the whole situation is um so you know from my my experience of uh my my very limited fictional experience of sword fighting where you know me, me and people who like me uh get our do some training and then when we've done melee combat and we've actually you know had teams against one another the first thing you you just realize is you have no idea what is going on yeah. um you're hopefully not dying that's the you know hopefully not getting hit and the whole thing is so incredibly difficult to understand where anyone is it's very easy with our authorial eye to look down across the battlefield and think ah yes detachment two was moving up on the flanks but if you were in a any sort of uh well if you're on any sort of battlefield uh i think the the reality is you have no idea what is going on more than 10 feet away from you pretty much all of the time and that's what joe and, and you know right a cone of about 60 degrees, right? That's all you can see. And and everything else around you, there's all the stuff going on behind you and you have no idea. It's so I, chaos. I work with um, a guy who was in, he was a, a fairly high ranking officer in the British army for about uh, 25 years, I think. And um, he, he told me that when they were in, uh, I think they were in uh, Iraq during a firefight, um, there was a guy who they said, uh, he said, when are we going to blow the bridge? And they said, well, we blew it two minutes ago. That that enormous deafening explosion that we all heard was the bridge going up. And the guy hadn't registered or clocked this earth-shattering noise, which was the whole reason they were there, because of the intensity of what was going on. Um, and that that is the reality of being in those, you know, desperate, like terrifying situations. And so I, I, I just think Joe, Joe gets that across very effectively that no one knows why they're there in the first place. No one knows what's going on, why they're there, 
while they're there. And then afterwards, they're still pretty confused about whether there was any point in them being there in the first place. Yeah. Right. And I, I bet that the uh, you, that your friend who was there didn't register the noise because he didn't have somebody right next to him going, dear God, what have I done? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. All right. I was afraid you guys wouldn't get the joke. All right. Good. Saad, you're going to say something. Yeah, there are there are three that I can think of that off the top of my head that I think they they got it right. Um, there's there's one science fi- science fiction, and that was in um, actually in Dune Chapter House. Uh, we oh. did a uh, you know we did a fairly extensive treatment of Dune Chapter House, but we didn't talk an awful lot about some of the battle sequences and the way that they were the way that they were structured. Um, granted in that particular one, they were structured from a, a longer distance away. Um, we got to follow the battle commander and what he was looking, looking for, but we also got views from the people that were down below, uh, actually doing the fighting. And I think the, this idea of the, the absolute confusion, uh, the absolute chaos that accompanies that was, was put across very well. Um, from a fantasy standpoint, uh, I go back to wax and wing. Um, as far as battles and, and I'll tell you why I loved them so much. Um, I'm, I'm excited for you to justify this. Okay. Uh, this, we go. this is one where I mean, and again, we're talking about, uh, we're, I'm, I'm allowing the magic system to be part of this, listening to the way that wax and, uh, specifically waxillium uses allomancy to change the flight of uh, change the flight of, of a piece of lead uh, with his with the the magical abilities that are imbued to him. Uh, they stayed pretty consistent as far as what was described as allowable. He recognizes that he's firing a, a projectile. He recognizes that it has very limited scope of impact, and that he has to be thinking about where it's going to do the most good. Um, and that while all of this is and of course. It's Sandersonian, so it's very beautifully written and all of these kinds of things, but there's a, a constant awareness that he's focused on the thing in front of him, not all of the things around him. And mm-hmm. as a character, he gets to move through that, handle it, and then move to the next one. But it's very clearly laid out as he's he's thinking very clearly about the thing that's in front of him and not thinking about all of the things. In fact, I think several times uh, Brandon has moments where he says, for his characters, they can't think about what else is going on. They have to focus on what's right in front of them right now, or they'll get lost. Um, the the third one that I think of, um, and and this is more of the grand scheme. And Craig, you and I did uh, the Lost Fleet. Thank you. That was going to be mine. Oh, all right, I'm sorry, I stole it from you. Um, it's all right. But that one was that one was uh, more based on naval battles in space. Uh, but the idea of uh, the, a, a couple of things that they got right about that. One of them was the time delay for trying to figure out what your strategies were going to be. These were long distance engagements and they were being fought in a, in a gravity free environment, but with time delay issues that had to be dealt with and the waiting before they got involved, uh, before they could make contact and the, the absolute frenzy of contact. And then you're away from each other and you have to reset, uh, and using these big ships as, as pieces that have to be thought about how do they overlap their areas of fire. I think that one was really well done as well. Nicely done. Nicely done. Yeah, you stole mine. So I'll just leave it there. I will say, okay, I, if, if I'm allowed, and I'm the host, so I'm allowed because I get to do whatever I want. This is my show. Uh, <laughs> I'll go back to movies for a second. 
uh did what oh shoot what was it called the tom cruise jamie fox one oh with collateral yeah was that was that right collateral um taxi there's cab one one, yep, one specific scene. So Tom Cruise is an assassin and Jamie Foxx has to drive him around to, you know, he's a cab driver who has to drive him to several assassination stops because movies. Um, but there's one scene where Tom Tom Cruise's character gets confronted by some guy and he has to kill him and he does a quick draw. He does a quick fire where he pulls the pistol, fires from the hip twice, hits the guy in the abdomen and then he falls down and he caps him twice in the head. Um, and that one, apparently that that scene is uh, i don't know if it still is but for a time it was used for military and law enforcement like this is how you <laughs> deal with close quarters combat in this situation whatever a quick draw whereas so, anyway, that was believe, pretty cool i believe they use john wick now for that <laughs> do they actually yeah. i wondered <laughs> well what's that yeah, what's equilibrium that's the one they should use they're like oh yeah they, i never saw that one i, I never saw it the gun carter <laughs> <laughs> what was the one with uh, James McAvoy uh, yeah, curving bullets all over the place? That was a ridiculous movie. Oh, I did not care for that. I can't remember. Do you that know was, what I'm talking about? I, I remember. I remember when it came wanted? out, but I don't remember what it was. Oh, whatever. Yeah, who cares? All right, all right. So, Ed, let me ask you. Uh, now that we've now that we've talked about a lot of these <laughs> issues, both pro and con, how does this factor into your writing? do you try hard to be as accurate as possible or do you have to extra shut off that part of your brain and say, no, I'm trying to entertain. I'm not going to worry about it. How does, how does combat work for you? Okay. Well, I mean, when I, I write a fair, fair amount of ac action sequences um, and the most important thing is, is not really whether or not you get the accuracy right or, or anything like that. It's, um, it's the emotional level of stakes that you've created for the characters. If we really, really care what's going to happen in a scene, uh, if the reader really cares about the protagonist and, and what they're going to achieve if they're victorious or defeated, it means that the reader will be should be very invested in in the things that happen physically mm -hmm. um whereas if we don't have stakes and we don't have meaning and and uh you know it's a uh a combat scene that's just kind of you know filling up a bit of time then it doesn't really matter how they wave their swords around or or um what magics they unleash um, when it when it comes to sort of the physical weapon stuff, I do try and be as accurate as as I possibly can. One because, <laughs> as much as I like to say it doesn't, it does really annoy me when I read like stuff where I'm like, wouldn't happen, wouldn't happen like that. Just uh, you know, when when every, when anyone does a forward roll out the way of like swinging a sword at someone, you know, I just want to say to people, all right, here's a test. You're gonna stand five feet away from each other. One of you is going to have a rolled up magazine and is going to try and hit the other one with the magazine and see if they can roll out of the way. <laughs> and of course they can't. You can't forward roll faster than someone can hit you or something. Like it, it's crazy. It doesn't make sense. So when anyone's, you know, when people start doing acrobatic flips around, unless it's been established in the sort of the magical canon of the world that you absolutely can do magical backflips. Like at the point where you're moving at superhuman speed, do all the backflips you want. And I think, you know, you were talking about um, Sanderson um, and in his, um, 
um, what's it called? Uh, the Words of Radiance uh, books. Mm, um, Stormlight Archive. Stormlight Archive, yeah. You know, like, they're doing some pretty funky spectacle when they're, when they're having their fights, but they're wearing these suits of armor that let them move, uh, you know, with uh, in, they can jump hundreds of feet, can't they? So if you're writing Supermen, they can be super wet. They can be, uh, yeah, Supermen, Superwomen, Super People. They can do whatever you want them to do. But what the reason that I think Sanderson does it really well is that he sets the limits of what people can do, even with the superpowers. And that's the thing. Um, so, you know, in, in the, my latest book, Daughter of Red Winter, out last week, probably three weeks ago, if you're listening to this. Uh, <laughs> buy it today. <laughs> buy it today. Find bookstores <laughs> everywhere. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a character who learns to control magical ability through the story. And there are rules and there are limits on what can happen. And the reader doesn't have to know what the rules are specifically, but the writer does. The writer has to know what they are and can't and break them until it's time to break them. You know, until we go, mm. what is it? It's called go Super Saiyan or, uh, you know, like uh, Dragon Ball Z mode and go Turbo. Um, but the writer has to know and it's the limitations of the powers that actually make it interesting. Yeah. It's why Superman is the most boring hero because he can do everything. It's much more, in- Spider-Man is way more interesting because he's a bit strong and he's a bit durable and he can swing around on webs, but that's basically it. Like there's, He hasn't got that much um, uh, variety in, in his arsenal. And so it's, how do you make each Spider-Man sequence interesting? How do you, how do you use the fact that he's got webs? Well, you make him like hold buses together and things, don't you? You know, like, uh, and it's how, how do we take this seemingly quite basic principle and make it exciting? Um, so, yeah, anyway, I've got a massive tangent, haven't I? <laughs> well, how dare you? First of all, the show uh, that has a segment actually called The Wheel of Tangents, and you went on a tangent. How dare you, sir? You fit. You how fit. dare you? Hey, can I ask a question? Uh, oh, fine. I'll give up my chair. Ed, uh, right. I, I'm, I, have you read uh, Michael Crichton's Timeline? I have not, no. Oh, and Todd, our listeners are... It is, it is. (laughs) Our our listeners are wondering when you are going to read Timeline for the show, Todd. Uh, All right, so... We did read Timeline. We just never got together to talk about it. Um, And the reason that I I was wondering is because in Timeline, they have an individual who uh, goes back in time to uh, medieval France. Uh, or medieval Europe, and he dons armor and winds up uh, engaging in combat. Uh, and and I, I wondered if you'd had the opportunity to look at that from your lens of how historically accurate is this? It sounded pretty good to hey, me. <laughs> let me, let me uh, Todd, I'm going to go off of a 15 or 20 year memory. It's been a long time since I read that book. Uh, but as I recall, there's that scene when he's in a, a duel, he's fighting somebody, you know, he's just gone into medieval France and now he's got to fight this guy. And as the scene goes, he dons his armor, he gets the sword and he realizes, oh my gosh, I'm wearing 80 pounds and I'm holding 45 pounds. How am I supposed to fight? And this guy comes at him and he's like, this is, he's insanely fast. 
I had no idea. I, I always thought that these were kind of lumbering tanks that could barely move because everything is so heavy. I can barely move, but this guy is coming at him and he's kind of whipping his sword through the air. So Ed, let me shoot this to you now because you participate and you, you alluded to this a moment ago in HEMA. Yep. HEMA. Is that how I say it? Mm -hmm. HEMA, HEMA, whatever. HEMA. Okay. Historical European martial arts, right? That's it. Okay. So, and this is where you and other enthusiasts get together and, and spar and have battles and, and whatnot. Right. So how, how is that? Uh, what would surprise people? Uh, about wielding a broadsword or putting on armor. Can you enlighten us on that? Okay, so um, the average weight of, uh, of a sword um, is something like 1.5 kilograms. Um, it's a few pounds. It's, a, it's, a, it's just a few pounds. Um, they are not heavy. Swords are, are hmm. light. They are easy to swing. Um, I would say that if any... Any 14-year-old, realistically, can pick up a sword and swing it around for an hour without... I mean, unless they're incredibly, incredibly unfit. You can do an hour's drilling with a sword, and you you'll, you might feel it in your arms the next day, but you won't be dropping it. It won't ever drag on the floor. Um, and the, the thing about uh, a suit of armor, um, you know, even what we call the, like a full harness, which, it, you know, people would, would uh, know it as a suit of plate armor. Which is not a historical term. It's, it's like many of the terms we, we, you know, we we've made them up to describe it. But um, the thing about it is, it is heavy, but the weight is distributed across your entire body. So it's it's distributed across the tops of your feet, across your head, your shoulders, and because of that full distribution, it's actually it, it's seemingly much lighter than you would imagine. Um, and the whole thing weighs less than a U.S. Marine carries on his back. The whole the whole suit of mm -hmm. armor, so yeah, like uh, you should be able to do cartwheels in a suit of armor. Um, should be able to uh, uh, do. Todd, handstands. did you hear that? Todd, you you should be able to do cartwheels in full armor, Todd. <laughs> oh my god, uh, yeah, I don't think I don't know if I can do a cartwheel at all. Um, <laughs> I know. I tell you what, you can't swim in it. You de you definitely can't swim. Um, it's not the weight; it's that it it, it removes your buoyancy. Um, and I've seen I've seen a video. I've never tried this. I've seen a video of someone attempting this, where they they wear a full suit of armor and get in the swimming pool um, with an oxygen pipe, um, and they could walk very well along the bottom of the pool. Um, but yeah, you're not you're not gonna, you are going to the bottom if you're if you're in your mm. armor. You're definitely going to the bottom. Mm. So okay, let me finish this portion of the discussion on this question uh and i can bring both of you in but todd this would be for you as a reader ed you as a writer so ed i'm gonna go to you first when we have one-on-one -on -one sword battles yeah i guess other weapons could apply but let's think specifically of swords there are a couple of ways you can write it there's the kind of sanderson version you know and a lot of writers do this we're just using him as a stand-in where it's very blow by blow you know i lifted my right arm with the sword above my head the other sword came crashing down. Then I pivoted on my left foot and put the, you know, whatever. He's going on for pages and pages with this combat. Very, very uh, detailed stuff. Then there's another way you can do it. And I'm thinking of the Wheel of Time. Again, there are others who did it this way. But uh, right now I'm thinking of the Wheel of Time where you have uh, sword forms. And he just gives them kind of 
bizarre names and lets you imagine what it means. So you're like, um, you know, watered silk met Kingfisher circles the pond or whatever, um, you know, and, and you get to imagine it in your head. What what do you prefer to write, Ed? And I guess, what do you prefer to read? Well, I I mean, those, those sort of names, first of all, those are actually, while they may be invented, they're not far from actually the, the reality. In, you know, training manuals do have names like the Watchtower, the Boar's Tusk, um, which is just a way of describing where how you're holding your sword. But I like to go with a bit of a combination of, of whatever, whatever suits the moment, really. My, the fight scenes I write tend to be over very, very quickly. Um, and that is me trying to be honest about combat. I say this. I'm, somebody's, I'm, <laughs> been watching, somebody's been watching The Seven Samurai. I, I mean, I, I, absolutely, I absolutely love, like, uh, the Kurosawa movies. And um, it's, uh, you know, the end of um, uh, Yohimbo, where... Um, what's, what, what's, what's that movie where... Oh, I've lost the name of it, but yeah, you know, like it's a single sword cut and, and the fight is over, but I, I will vary between, you know, uh, the swords rise and fall and it's basically over in in a heartbeat. And maybe you use that as like a narrative device. If you want to show that this guy is really, really good, or she is, you know, she is being bigged up so that later in, in the story, she is, known to be a threat if anyone's good they're going to finish it like pow it should be over in a in a snap however in the in the last book of the the raven's mark series there is a bit where the you know the protagonist event you know kind of well injects himself with scorpion dragon blood and goes like turbo mode at which point he and you know to because it's the is the only way he can fight this enemy is to match him in in corrupt magic, filling his body. And at that point, yeah, this is in the this is, this the, is the new one, one or the no this okay all right. At this point, I need to get to that one. Yeah, they're throwing each other through walls. They're like punching <laughs> each other through the city, like and so it depends what you want. Um, and so yeah, like but if it's going long, it's it's got, for me, it's got to have. A, uh, a character development through that narrative, um, through through that fight, rather than just the sequence of how the fight goes. I th- for me, I think that gets a little bit, well, it gets pretty dull pretty quickly. Um, I'm all yeah. about the character feels. Todd, what about you? So, um, and Craig, I don't know if you're aware of this, but I, I fenced uh, for several years. And so... Um, Yes, Todd. I, I know. I, I didn't yes, know if I ever. You have about earned that your place on this show. You are enough of a dork to be on this show. It's fine. <laughs> I knew that. Um, one of the one of the things that uh, so for me, uh, reading things like the the spell of the inside of the of the helmet. I I the number of times that I have been in a mask for extended periods of time, breathing heavy, and all of all of the things that go with it. I like the pieces of the combat that are about the sensations that the that the warriors are engaged in um, those, those make it real. Um, and so if it's not a blow by blow, that's fine. An indication of trading blows and of, of defending and of, and of uh, striking all of those things, as long as they, as I feel like they connect to the reality of what the, what the person that's engaged in uh, is going through that, that for me makes for interesting reading and for believable reading. Um, I love the, 
I love the, you know, third person cinematic watching all of these things, you know, a la John Wick or Brandon Sanderson or however, you know, which, whichever, or, or Star Wars and the, and the, you know, the lightsaber battle that goes over 14 miles between Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker and uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi. I mean, all of those can be really interesting, but when it comes to what, when it comes to me saying, wow, that was really powerful. It's more about the sensations that are communicated by the person who's engaged in that moment. If I feel like I'm like I'm in their shoes, in their skin, then for me, that's that's good writing. Hmm, hmm, hmm. Interesting. Um, this you're making me think now of uh, of the lightsaber battle in Episode Three at the very end, Obi Wan versus Anakin, where it, you start with a lot of emotion. You're very connected to what's going on. Anakin's turned to the dark side. Obi Wan is uh, you know distraught and all this, and then they and then they join lightsaber blades to put it filthily. Um, but then as the, as the fight goes on, it just zooms out and it, they're, they're fighting on a bridge. Now they're swinging on ropes and fighting. And they're always about a half mile away from the camera. It seems like, and suddenly it's like, yeah, I don't care anymore. They're standing yeah, on know, droids I, floating over lava. Right. And then, and then <laughs> oh, don't get me started. Um, <laughs> And when they, when they zoom back in, when the camera comes back in, I'm like, okay, maybe I'll care again. But there's like seven minutes in there where I'm like, all right, I'm out. Yeah. They just kept going from a half mile away. Anyway. Uh, yeah. All right. Go on. Ed, to your point too, the, the, um, the believability of the, of the shortness of the impact. One of the things that, uh, I, I've, I, I've taken a couple of, um, uh, self-defense classes and one of them was really interesting. Uh, the gentleman said, if you're in a self-defense situation, stop trying to trade blows, start causing injury. Um, it was just a, it was very visceral. It was, it was very uncomfortable actually, um, because he started going through and saying, if you're really in a bad situation, here are the three places on the human body that are very vulnerable. Hit these first. Um, and, and then I look at all of the, uh, all, either movies or movies predominantly, but also in, uh, in literature where it's trading blows for blows. It's, it's, uh, it's a lot of, it's a lot of form. It's a lot of, everybody's observing all of the rules of combat and they're all being very nice and they're not hitting in sensitive places. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking to myself, you know, I think if I were really in a battle for my life, I'd cheat. <laughs> and I would, I would, I would, I would be as fast as possible. And I would conserve as much energy as possible for the next opponent and get it over with as quickly as possible. It's that Indiana Jones moment, isn't it? When the guy comes out swinging the sword all over the place and he's just, pow. <laughs> just, <laughs> uh, you know, like, yeah, like the, the idea of um, honorable fighting is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a concept developed by people who wanted to fight professionally to their own advantage, you know, and having the best armor and the best weapons and, uh, going on campaigns to accrue personal wealth, they you know developing this idea of personal honor in combat. But of course, if someone's trying to get you, like you know, throw some dirt in their eyes or let your mate stab them, run away, come back with six friends. Like... <laughs> oh man! All right. Well, this I don't know where to leave this particular discussion. <laughs> I so I'm just gonna cut it off and say, all right, this <laughs> cut, cut it off. See what you did there. Uh, I... I'm, I'm just going to say, all right, fine. I'll never fight Ed McDonald. Okay, great. <laughs> so that's been established. I, there's, 
there's there's no honor there only death for me uh okay so before we go we've got a few more minutes ed i wanted to ask you about daughter of red winter what is it give us the elevator pitch sell us on this book <laughs> if you're watching on youtube you can oh, see it you, yeah you can see you can see the american version as well yeah um oh, yeah, so um, Daughter of Redwinter, it's about a young woman who um, she's found herself traveling with a sort of benign cult um, who worship colors. And she knows she knows that the, the cult are, you know, their their beliefs are a bit of a scam. Um, but they're in, they're under siege. They've made some mistakes um, and they find themselves in a bad spot. And uh, and Raina heroine can see ghosts, which is um Something that will, uh, in her world, those that can see the dead get put to death. Everyone thinks they will become sort of terrible necromancers, and uh, but really, it's just it's just something she's been able to do since she was a kid. And uh, she gets mixed up in uh, in politics and conspiracy, dragged off to a kind of wizard school where. You know what? It, rather than being like uh, a kind of Harry Potter wizard school where with bumbling teachers, it's more like they're actually quite good at teaching people, except they won't let her join. Um, she, she's the outsider. She's made to be a servant there instead. Um, and so finds herself forced to live with the, uh, the very people who would like to execute her if they were to discover who and what she is capable of doing. Um and hopefully, as we go along, the reader will kind of get the impression that, yeah, maybe maybe they should have a reason to be a little afraid of her. Um, but mm. maybe this power to see the dead is probably going to lead down some fairly dark paths. Um, so I, I like to to think of it if uh, what if you inadvertently and by accident became Sauron. Okay. Wow. Oh, okay. Hang on. Now I got a noodle on that for a second inadvertently became Sauron. I, I assume we're talking about Sauron circa, uh, you know, 3019, the third age of oh, Middle Oh, that is some good knowledge there. I, I, am, I am impressed, my man. Yeah, like what, what, if, uh, what if you, without meaning to be, were kind of on a path where you might become the Dark Lord in the end um, because hmm. everyone else is doing some dumb stuff and if you're the only one who can stop them and what you've got to stop them is pretty bad, you might have to use it anyway. So, And she's going to find out a lot about herself and uh, who she is and that kind of thing. Along oh, sure, sure. Character growth Character. and you know journeys and whatever. Yeah, those are the, No, that sounds really cool. Yeah. It's, it's hard to describe all those sort of, uh, you know, character relationships uh, in, a, in an elevator pitch. I mean, this would have been oh, no, this would have been a long elevator ride, wouldn't it? <laughs> you, you guys would be like, "Emergency stop! Emergency!" <laughs> no, it's a, it's like um, somebody saying, "Tell me about your child." Yeah. You know, like, sure, yeah, yeah, sit down. You got a few hours. I'll tell you about my child. Uh, yeah, it's tough to do, but no, that's I think that's a good pitch. I like that. So, um, who who's this book targeted for? Do we have an age group in mind? Is this adult? Is it YA? So I've been reading the same kind of fantasy books since I was about 13, 14, all for the rest of my life. I don't, I don't really believe that YA has any... The, the only distinction I make between YA and adult is that YA books are about uh, inherently involved the traumas of being in that pre-adult moment. Mm. 
and adult yeah. books are about people dealing with the traumas they've experienced. Um, so I would say I would say basically any any speculative fiction reader and and in fact any reader fourteen and up is probably they're probably good. All right, yeah, I like that. I um, uh, have had my rants in the past, as Todd knows, about uh, the over genreification of genre fiction, <laughs> um, or I should say subgenreification. But uh, no, I, I like that. Yeah, and this actually gets this is a whole other topic that we did an episode on, and we don't need to revisit it again. But it's a pet theory or pet idea of mine that if art is good, it has no age ceiling even if it might have an age floor. Yeah. Um, so yeah. anyway, all right, very cool. Sorry, did you have uh, yeah. one other thing you wanted to say? I was going to say, yeah, absolutely. There are age flaws. There's suitability. and But also what my, my previous series, you know, the protagonist was a 40-year-old man and a lot of it was about regret and self-loathing and, you know, uh, traumas of the past, which I understand why that would be harder to resonate for younger readers you you know if you're 15 you've never you don't even know what mistakes are at 15 do you like, um <laughs> whereas this series is about um the protagonist is 17 in the first book and i think that's relatable pretty much whatever age you are we all remember that mm. love it love it all right well so daughter of red winter uh, also i should Tell people who are listening, if you haven't checked it out, check out the Raven's Mark trilogy that you're talking about. Uh, but Daughter of Red Winter is the new one that just came out. Uh, so everyone, please go check it out and uh, let me know when you do, because I love getting on Twitter and hashtagging the Legendarium Moves product. Okay, so let us know when you pick it up and what you think of it. Uh, it's, a, it's a lot of fun when you do. So Ed McDonald, thank you so much. Really appreciate you being, being here. Thanks so much, guys. All right, Todd, have a good one. Thanks, you too. And uh, for everybody else, thank you for listening. Again, thelegendarium.com for Discord link, for the Patreon link. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode, and we will see you next time. <laughs>